January 6th, 2006, was one of the coldest nights of the year in the Florida panhandle. When 15-year-old Carrie came home from a date with her boyfriend, Daniel, she thought it was weird to find that her mom, Melissa Howard, had locked the front door to their house and left their chocolate lab, Rusty, out back. I uh, went to our backyard and jumped the fence to see we had two uh, doors in the back, and I tried to get in. And since that didn't work, I jumped back over, and Daniel suggested getting a credit card to try and jimmy the front door open. Daniel's suggestion worked. They were able to jimmy the front door to the house open, but when Carrie finally went inside, she saw something she will never forget. I went into the front foyer and I turned the light on. What did you see once uh, there was better light? My mom lying there. Carrie ran out and ran across the street to the neighbor's house. Her mom, a 33-year-old mother of three, had been attacked and stabbed to death in her own home. Couch cushions were all disheveled. Melissa's neck had been slashed, and she was laying against the wall on her right side in a pool of her own blood. Fingers pointed to Melissa's current boyfriend, her ex-husband, and even associates of her ex-husband. Although the police had several suspects, they were unable to make an arrest. For nearly a decade, her case went unsolved. Local police and state authorities worked hard on their investigation, and they held on to key evidence in the case. Years later, DNA technology would be invented that investigators in 2006 could only dream about. Thanks to a hunch, they retested the bloody sweatshirt Melissa was wearing when she was murdered. Finally, nearly 10 years later, they had a match. Recently, police agencies around the country have been making headlines for arrests in cold cases using DNA matching that wasn't available at the time of the crime. And the evidence is going to show the state has some problems, and lots of them. But could there be a problem with this technology? Could the same evidence used to catch a criminal also be used in their defense? This is Jillian, and you are listening to Court Junkie, episode 87. As you all know, following criminal cases and trials is my passion, but even I need an occasional break. So when I feel like I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher now is this game called Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a puzzle game that you can play right on your phone. And it's really cool because you go through all these levels, solving challenging puzzles that actually engage your brain. But it's a casual game that anyone can play and it's really, really fun. I just made it to level 30 and I only started playing a few days ago. The great thing about it is that it doesn't take up much of your time, but it's great in that it fills up those moments where you wish you had something to do, aside from scrolling through social media over and over again. The other day I was in the waiting room for what seemed like forever at the doctor's office, but having this game to play made the time go by much faster. You also don't need Wi-Fi to play it, so it's cool for when you're without the internet, like on an airplane, for example. The game itself is also visually stimulating with its bright colors and fun characters, and Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events so it never gets old. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters, too. 
Best Fiends is a five-star rated mobile puzzle game on the Apple App Store and Google Play. And you can download it now for free. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Melissa Howard and her three children loved playing board games together. They went to church, watched movies, and enjoyed the beach. But she was a single mom and had to split time with them with their fathers, too. Her oldest twin daughters were teenagers and were largely independent. Her son, Taylor, from her second marriage, was only 11. Do you know if there were any ongoing issues as part of the divorce? Um, Me, they were trying to get custody of me um, and trying to get full-time custody. I guess I'm not sure really anything else you're asking. Was curious if you knew. So you knew there was a custody battle. Yes, sir. In 2006, Melissa and her second husband, Brian Howard, were in the midst of a nasty custody battle. Taylor mostly lived with Brian, but Melissa sought to change that. It took until years after their divorce, but a judge finally awarded Melissa primary custody of her son. But just two days before the switch in custody, there was an ominous warning. You need to let that boy be with his father. You need to let this go. On the evening of January 4th, 2006, Carrie and Daniel drove home from church together. When they got home, they waited in the driveway for Melissa to arrive. Melissa had just gone to drop Taylor off at Brian's house, and then she was going to meet Carrie at home. Melissa pulled up, and then shortly after, a man also pulled into the driveway. I went to get out of the car, and Mom told me to get back in. And they talked for a little bit. Carrie says she got back into her car, so she doesn't know what her mom and the man talked about. She did, however, see her mom make a gesture with her arms, shrugging and raising her hands. The man left shortly thereafter. It was nearly 30 degrees Fahrenheit on the night of January 6th, 2006, just two days after that mysterious meeting between Melissa and the man. In Crestview, Florida, less than an hour drive from Pensacola and not far from the Alabama border, 30 degrees Fahrenheit was cold. Melissa's boyfriend, Chris Cadenhead, was over at her house. Melissa, Chris, and her son Taylor played Jenga and Connect Four. Chris was a UPS driver He met Melissa while he was delivering packages to her house along his route, and they had been dating for a few months now. There was already a rather large problem with their relationship, however. Chris was married and had a young child. In order to see each other, Chris would wait to take his lunch breaks until the end of his shift so he could spend that hour at Melissa's house without his wife questioning where he was. On the night of January 6th, that's exactly where Chris was. He had gone to Melissa's house after his last stop at 6.10 p.m. Melissa left with Taylor to drop him off at a Mexican restaurant at about 6.30 p.m. He was going to a farewell dinner for his dad's girlfriend's son. When your mom dropped you off, can you just describe how that exchange went? Uh, Very emotional. She's very upset. 
I knew something was off that night. Um, my dad and her, my dad stayed in his vehicle and they exchanged words across the parking lot. I didn't want to leave her. She was really upset. And um, I wound up getting in the truck with my dad. After Melissa dropped him off, she went back home. She had only been gone for about 10 to 15 minutes. Meanwhile, Chris had stayed behind and watched TV. Chris later left Melissa's house to drop the UPS truck back off at work. Records show he arrived at the UPS station at 7.50 p.m. and clocked out at 8.05 p.m. Later that night, Melissa asked her daughter to stay home and watch a movie with her. But at 15 years old, Carrie wanted to go bowling with her boyfriend. Carrie usually had a curfew of 10 p.m., but on this night, Melissa said she could stay out until 11. After a night of knocking down a few pins and a pit stop at the beach, Carrie and Daniel were back home just before 11 p.m. When we pulled in, uh, we stood in front of the porch for a little bit to say goodbye. And then um, when we said goodbye, I went to open the door and it was locked and I couldn't get it. How would you normally get in your house after being out on a date? I would just walk in. My mom would wait up for me, so the door was always unlocked. She said she tried calling her mom's cell phone and house phone several times, but she didn't pick up. Chris then showed up next. According to Chris, he had gone back home to his house around 9 p.m. after clocking out at work. He then got ready to leave for a hunting trip he was going on near Louisville, Alabama. He spoke to his wife and played with his daughter before leaving his house again at 10.15. He then stopped at a convenience store where his wife called him to tell him about a prayer his daughter said for him before bed. Chris said he was going to stop by Melissa's house again to see her for a minute on his way to Alabama. This wasn't something he typically did, and Melissa didn't know he was coming over. He tried calling her on both her cell phone and house phone when he was nearby, but she didn't answer. When he arrived at the house at 11.13 p.m., Carrie and Daniel were standing on the front porch together. Carrie describes what the house was like once she finally got inside. The foyer is in the very front, which opens up to the living room. And um, we had a huge entertainment center on the back wall, and she was lying on the wall all the way across. Carrie instantly ran out of the house and across the street. Chris then went inside to see for himself. First, it took a minute for my eyes to adjust. Uh, The TV had a blue light. The whole screen was blue, like the end of a movie. And uh, when my eyes did adjust, I could see Melissa lying on the floor in the living room. What was your reaction when you saw her? At first, I thought she had a seizure or something something medically was wrong. Why do you believe that? Just, uh, that was just my first thought. I thought maybe she had fallen or something. I wasn't really sure. Did there come a point where you thought something different had happened? Yes, sir. I walked in, and the closer I got to her, uh, I could tell that there was a pool of blood around her head. She was face down. 
He said he didn't touch her. He said he asked Carrie to call 911, but she was shaken. So he took her phone and then called himself. He told the 911 operator that there was a shooting at the house and that a woman had been shot in the head. When my eyes focused, I could see uh, Melissa's hair was long and curly and her hair pulled up around the left side of her neck. And there was just a, a, it looked like a bullet hole. Here's a snippet from Chris's 911 call. Okay, she's unconscious, she's not talking to you, anything? No, there's blood everywhere. Is she breathing? Can you get a pulse of any kind? I haven't even touched her. I didn't want to mess with nothing. She's been murdered. At the same time he was on the phone with 911, he also called his wife. He asked her to take their daughter to her mom's house and then come to Crestview, where he said his friend lived. Chris said he never went back into the house after that. According to records, the 911 call came in at 11.18 p.m. Emergency medical personnel arrived at the house at 11.37 p.m. This is Oskaloosa County paramedic William Welch. The patient was on her right side. Um, There was a wound on her left side of the neck. It was a large, large wound that was there. We had um, limited time that we had to confirm whether you know the patient was deceased. We do that by placing them on a monitor. So once we did that, then we we're released and we are exited back outside the residence. Was the patient still alive while you were there? No, sir. The patient was deceased. The police arrived and closed off the crime scene. The paramedics were excused. Crime scene investigators noticed drops of suspected blood on the driveway on the approach to the house. And inside was Melissa, lying on the floor, surrounded by blood. She was wearing a dark blue sweatshirt, pajama pants, and socks. There was a chest of drawers that were open, and clothes had been thrown on the floor of the master bedroom. But aside from that, it didn't appear that anything obvious was out of place or was missing. The jewelry in her bathroom was still there. Her TV and major electronics were still in their place. But when Carrie went back into the house, she noticed that a couple of important and sentimental things to her mother were gone. A journal her mother wrote in regularly, her Bible, and a tape recorder she had set up to record her phone calls during her custody battle with Brian were all missing. Melissa's neighbor and friend had helped her set up a home surveillance system. This was a fairly new technology back in 2006. Melissa had wanted to be able to see who was at the front door, and she also had cameras installed in the living room. But as luck would have it, the cameras had never been able to record and thus didn't record anything of value to the investigation. Investigators needed to talk to potential witnesses to try to develop a suspect list. Carrie had remembered an incident two days earlier, which seemed especially peculiar. The incident where that man had pulled up into the driveway to speak with Melissa, but Carrie didn't know what they'd talked about. She told the police that the man was David Russell Holbrook, whom she called Russell, 
and said he was a friend of Brian's. She said it had been years since she had seen him. Police wanted to know why Russell was there and what he had said to Melissa. They wanted to bring him in for questioning. An investigator for the Crestview Police Department spoke with Russell on January 25, 2006, in a recorded interview. Russell told police the last time he had seen Melissa was two years prior to her death. At a second interview a week later, he said he remembered that he had dropped by to see Melissa just two days before she died. Officer James Land interviewed Russell, pressing him on his inconsistencies. You knew it was a murder investigation and you lied, he said at one point in the interview. The interview was conducted at 10 p.m. and Russell had been read his Miranda rights. Russell told the officer that he pulled into Melissa's house around 8 p.m. on January 4th. He said he went inside the house with Melissa, that they talked for probably 10 to 15 minutes. When asked what they talked about, he said, just how you doing? The Florida Department of Law Enforcement, or FDLE, were asked to assist on this case. FDLE Special Agent Kenneth Pinkard interviewed Russell again on February 7, 2006. He had agreed to be interviewed at his house. Russell told Agent Pinkard that he knew Melissa because his brother, Michael, is friends with her ex-husband, Brian. He went on in the interview to say he actually wanted to speak to Melissa to ask about his soon-to-be ex-wife, Allison. At the time, Allison was staying with Brian, and he said he wanted to see if she had heard anything about her. Why would she know anything about Allison? Agent Pinkard asked him. Because her and Brian swapped Taylor custody back and forth, he said. He said he saw Melissa drop Taylor off at Brian's house, so he drove to Melissa's house to talk to her after she left. Agents pressed him on his timeline that day, saying they had witnesses disputing his whereabouts. They claimed he went deliberately to Melissa's house for something else. So tell me, were you there watching Allison and then Melissa drove up and you decided to talk to her? Or were you there waiting for Melissa to come? They asked him. He said he had gone to Brian's house to see if he was home in order to try to get a hold of Allison. When he saw Melissa, he asked her to talk and then followed her home. The agents asked him, did anyone ask you to follow Melissa that night? Russell said no. They then switched to the day of the murder, two days after that, on January 6th. Russell said he was at his girlfriend's house for her child's birthday party. He picked up his own kids to take them to the party since it wasn't his normal week with them. He tried showing the agents photos of himself at the party on his computer, but couldn't find any. He said he drove his kids home and then went back to the party. The agents then cut to the chase and asked him if he was the one who had killed Melissa. He said no. They asked if he owned a knife, and he said several. When asked if he could account for all of them, he said all of them but one. I have an automatic knife that only the military can have that was in a safe that Allison took when she moved out, he said. But although they were suspicious, the agents didn't have any direct evidence tying Russell to Melissa's death, so they let him leave. Russell and his family ultimately moved to Alabama, while Melissa's case 
remained unsolved. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. But the problem growing businesses have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their hodgepodge of business systems. They have one system for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory, and so on. It's just a big, inefficient mess taking up too much time and too many resources. And that hurts the bottom line. Introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance and accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash court. That's netsuite.com slash court to download your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, netsuite.com slash court. One of my favorite apps on my phone happens to belong to my next sponsor, The Real Real. Own iconic luxury items at unreal values with The Real Real, the leading reseller of authenticated luxury consignment from top designers. You can shop from designers like Louis Vuitton, Gucci, Rolex, Cartier, and hundreds more at up to 90% off retail. New arrivals come in daily, and one of my favorite parts is that every single item is 100% expert authenticated by the Real Reels team of experts. Shop and consign women's and men's luxury fashion, as well as fine jewelry, watches, art, and home. Shop online or visit one of their original stores in Soho or West Hollywood or their newest location at 870 Madison Avenue in New York. You may also visit one of their luxury consignment offices in Chicago, Dallas, Miami, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. In-store new customers receive an automatic $25 off at checkout. I've been a big fan of The Real Real for about a year or so now, and I've gotten some handbags, sunglasses, some really cool pieces of jewelry, and my very favorite rain jacket. And the best part is that I got all of those things at really great prices right from my phone. Because like I said, I just love their app. Shop in-store, online, or download the app and get 20% off select items with the promo code REAL. That's therealreal.com, promo code REAL for 20% off select items. If you're a Court Junkie listener, then you will definitely agree with me. There are some stories in the media that even at their resolution, leave more questions than answers. When Jeffrey Epstein died in his jail cell this summer, he left behind a trail of crime and corruption. But who he was, how he made his money, and how he got away with so many crimes remained a mystery. From Wondery, the mysterious Mr. Epstein will put all the pieces of this story together. Stay tuned to the end of this episode for a preview of The Mysterious Mr. Epstein. While you're listening, go subscribe to The Mysterious Mr. Epstein on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. There's also a link in the episode notes that will take you there. In 2015, nine years after Melissa's death, FDLE agents decided to try again. 
they wanted to use a tool they hadn't yet tried in her case. During Melissa's autopsy, a foreign substance was found on the bloodied sweatshirt she had been wearing, and they wanted to test this substance using the new tool. It's called YSTR testing. YSTRs are often used in forensics for genealogical DNA testing. They are taken specifically from the male Y chromosome, and it then makes matches for paternal relatives. Agents obtained a search warrant and got a sample of Russell's DNA. The retest of the sample excluded Brian Howard, but the YSTR testing did match the Holbrooks. This meant that anyone on the male side of the Holbrook family was now a suspect. The agents focused their attention on Russell and his brother Michael, but further DNA testing excluded Michael and proved to be a match for Russell. On Tuesday, November 8th, 2016, more than 10 years after her death, David Russell Holbrook was arrested for Melissa's murder. Agents arrested him in his Huntsville, Alabama home. Video of officers escorting him off the plane across the tarmac after he was extradited led the local evening news that night. It was seen as a major victory for law enforcement. This was never a cold case since I've been chief, Crestview Police Chief Tony Taylor told reporters. In February 2019, the case went to trial. In his opening statement, Assistant State's Attorney Clifton Drake laid out a timeline of what he said were important events around Melissa's death. Now, you'll hear that when the defendant was interviewed by law enforcement, he lied about having been at Melissa's house that Wednesday night. You will hear that he said he had not seen her in years. He had not been to her house in years. You will then hear him admit that he had, in fact, been there on January 4th, 2006. He claims that he lied because he was afraid of having third-party contact with his wife, Allison, who was going through a divorce with Russell. Allison was living with Brian Howard and his girlfriend at the time. Also during that interview, Russell's first story was that he left his house with Michael about 8.30 to take his kids home and then go to Walmart and that he returned back by 9 o'clock. As I said, you will get to see a Walmart surveillance video showing that he did not even arrive at Walmart until 9.37 that night. You'll hear a later interview of the defendant where his timeline started changing. In the subsequent interview, he said he left his house at 8.40 or 8.45, dropped his kids off right at 9 o'clock, then went to Walmart and was home by 9.15 or 9.30. You'll hear another interview where the timeline keeps shifting. Lead counsel John Jarvis III gave opening statements on behalf of the defense. Wow. That's a, that was a very interesting theory the state has proposed to you. It would be very interesting to say, see if they'll actually be able to back that up. He told the jury they would have 13 years worth of information to consume. He said the evidence is going to show the state has problems, and lots of them. He addressed what he called issues based on identity, an alleged confession, motive, and opportunity. 
He said that while the state will present an expert who says the DNA on Melissa's sweatshirt will match Russell, the defense will call an expert too, who will say his DNA is only a partial match. So you're going to hear from two experts. One's going to claim it's a match. The other one's going to claim it's not a match. So it's not quite as clear and dried as the state would have you to believe. She's going to explain that Russell, and I stress, only could be a possible contributor. Only could be a possible contributor. That's very interesting that you need to listen to her testimony about. She is going to explain that there are a lot of other possible profiles, meaning people, that could leave the same DNA and it not be Russell Holbrook. He said still, after 13 years at this point, police have not provided a motive for why Russell would murder Melissa. Janice Burke has been a family law attorney for 29 years and was called as a witness by the state. In 2004, Melissa Howard was her client. Melissa went to Burke in February 2004 over a custody issue she was having with Brian after their divorce. At the time, Brian had primary custody of their son, Taylor, and Melissa wanted to see about modifying their custody agreement. Here, Burke describes their custody case. It was, I think a lot of people would probably refer to it as ugly and nasty. It, it was not good. She said there were several hearings before the final hearing over whether custody should be modified. At the conclusion of each of those hearings, I did ask for um, bailiff or law enforcement to escort me to my car, which is unusual for me. The court ruled in September of that year that custody was to switch from Brian to Melissa, but Brian did not comply. They went back to court in November because of Brian's objections to the order. The hearing had gotten bifurcated, so we had two different hearings um, in 2005. And uh, Judge Stone entered an, uh, sent us a letter basically telling us that um, he was granting Melissa's um, request to switch custody and had asked me to prepare a proposed judgment. And so I did that in September of 05, I believe it was. And um, her former husband's attorney, I submitted it to him and he objected to it. And ultimately, we ended up going back to see Judge Stone on November 29, 2005. And so the order did not get signed. Burke described the Howard case as not a normal one. She said she would talk to Melissa often, and Melissa would drop by her office without making an appointment. The custody switch from Brian to Melissa was scheduled to be enacted on January 6, 2006, the day Melissa was murdered. On January 3rd, just a few days prior, Melissa called Burke and left her a message. Burke returned Melissa's call on the evening of January 4th, after business hours. She was crying. She was upset. I was attempting to get her to tell me what was going on. She was not hysterical, so I could I could understand her. But 
you know how you get the feeling someone's headed that way. I, I just got the impression that she was about to not be able to talk. She was that upset when I called her. She told Melissa to slow down and tell her what was going on. The state sought to introduce what Melissa said to Burke. The defense objected and said the statement was hearsay. The judge allowed for the state to lay a foundation for the hearsay exception as an excited utterance. The judge had the jury leave the room so that the attorneys could make their arguments. The prosecutor argued that when someone is under the stress or excitement of a startling event, that it's an exception to the hearsay rule. Availability of that declarant is immaterial. It doesn't matter if she's in court, living, dead, or otherwise. Melissa was already crying and talking faster and faster, showing the extreme emotional state she was in. The key, the prosecutor claimed, was that she hadn't had an opportunity to engage in reflective thought. While under that stress and excitement, she was relaying what was going on. Burke had testified that Melissa was talking quickly, was crying, upset, and that she did not expect Melissa to be talking like that. The defense objected to the excited utterance argument, saying the basis of it hadn't been shown. The state had the burden to prove that Melissa did not have time to reflect before making the statement, and the defense claimed that they hadn't reached that burden. The judge allowed the state to proffer the witness to see if the necessary foundation could be laid. The first thing that she said was, I knew this was going to happen. Did she elaborate on what that was? Well, after I asked her and said, you knew what was going to happen. What did she, she say? She said, I knew Brian was going to send one of his men over to scare me. Did she say who Brian Howard sent to scare her? She said it was Russell. What was your response to Russell? I said, is it the Russell that you've told me about before? And she said she wasn't sure. And I said, what? Tell me his name. And she said, David Russell Holbrook. And I want to say she had a junior at that time. She said his full name. Was there anything else that she relayed to you that Russell told her while he was there? Well, I I asked her, why was he there? What did he do? And things of that nature. Because she was getting to the point where she couldn't talk to me. And um, she said, you need to let that boy be with his father. Um, you need to let this go. I asked her if he hurt her. I don't know if you want me to go that far. If he had, she wanted to know what to do. And I said, if you feel threatened, you need to call 911 if he's, and I honestly don't know the result of that. During the course of your conversation with her, these details that she provided, um, how was her tone of voice, demeanor, all of that as compared to when she first answered the phone? The more she talked about it, the more upset she became. He was in her house. She told me he came in her house. She said the call was less than five minutes. Melissa said Russell had just left. The judge ruled that the statement Melissa said to Burke would be allowed in as excited utterance. He told the defense they would have the opportunity to cross-examine her. And so the jury got to hear those words Melissa said on the phone call. I knew this would happen. Brian sent one of his men over to scare me. He just left. I knew he would do this. It was Russell, David Russell Holbrook. He said, 
You need to let that boy be with his father, and you need to let this go. The defense then had their chance to cross-examine Burke. Ms. Burke, earlier you testified that during this family law process that you had to have security walk you out of the courtroom. Is that correct? I felt more comfortable with that happening, yes. You, had, you did something you really never done before. Not, not ever, but extremely rare. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, that wasn't because of David, I'm, I'm sorry, that wasn't because of Russell Holbrook, was it? Or let me ask no, you. well. It was because of, you were scared of Brian Howard. Absolutely, and the people he hung out with. I mean, he had people at court with him sometimes. Was it ever David Russell Holbrook? Was I could not. Russell Holbrook? I don't know the answer to that. Carrie, now in her late 20s, was also called as a witness to testify. She told the court about that strange encounter between her mother and Russell two days before her death. During cross-examination, she said her mom often wrote in a journal in her bedroom that it was important to her and that it was missing from the house. Also missing was a tape recorder that had recorded her phone calls. There was a tape recorder that recorded phone conversations. Yes. Okay. And, and, and why was that? Why, why was she recording phone conversations? She was going through a custody battle for my brother with Brian Howard. And uh, she would record things, uh, their conversations. And it, would you agree it was a pretty bitter custody battle? Yes. Okay. One in which Mr. Brian Howard was just about to lose custody on January the 9th, 2006. Is that correct? Prior to that, I was not aware. Carrie said no one else knew her mom had allowed her to stay out for an extra hour that night. She also said she agreed with the defense that it was unusual to see her mom's boyfriend, Chris, there that late. He wasn't over often when she was home. At the time, she said she didn't know he was married. On redirect, the prosecution questioned her further on what she knew about Russell. Was there any other time that Russell was at your house other than that Wednesday night? No. Why not? Russell was not allowed out of our house. Um, He was considered one of Brian Howard's friends. And um, my mother was going through a custody battle with Brian Howard. He had made several threats on her life. She considered Russell to be his friend and dangerous. She said that she had caught him at her house before with a gas can and I was to never let him nor any of Brian's friends at our home, inside the home, ever. Chris Cadenhead also testified. He told the court that while he had only been seeing Melissa for a few months, the two were falling fast for each other. On cross, the defense pressed him on his alibi. He admitted that only his wife and three-year-old daughter could corroborate it. I guess Melissa Howard knew that you were married, is that yes. right? Yes. And there was some talk that you were going to be leaving your wife, isn't that correct? Yes, sir. Uh, we, I was pretty much out the, heading out the door, yes, sir. Okay. And you had kind of indicated to her, Miss Howard, Miss, Miss Melissa Howard, that you wanted to be with her, is that right? Yes. 
He was asked if FDLE agents had asked him anything about a pregnancy test Melissa may have taken. Uh, at When I was, my first statement at the end of January, it was brought up about that. And I had nothing about it because she had told me her tubes were tied. And her neighbor said that she had to take that to something to do with her meds she was taking. She had to take a pregnancy test after taking meds. I, I don't know what meds. But, but you were confronted by FDLE agents with the possibility that she was taking a pregnancy test. Or they asked you about that, didn't they? They asked me if I knew that there was one in the garbage can, and I, I had no idea. He was then asked about how he called his wife at the same time as he called 911. You're on 911 in one hand and your wife in the other hand. Yes. And she's finding out for the first time that you're having this affair with this woman that's now dead. Is that correct? She didn't know till she was heading up to Crestview. I told her over the phone she had called me again. But yeah, she she didn't know why I was in Crestview or what I was even doing up there. She didn't know what you were doing over at the dead woman's house either, did she? She had no idea. But so she finds out on this night that you're having an affair. And not only are you having an affair, but you're having an affair with this dead woman that you discover. Is that right? Yes. Chris and his wife divorced after Melissa's murder and the discovery of his infidelity. But they have since remarried. Prosecutors contend that the motive for the crime wasn't to steal valuables. They had been left in the house. Her killer wasn't after money. Clothing in her drawers had been thrown on the floor as if someone was looking for something or as if someone was trying to stage a crime scene. And there were also signs of a struggle. The medical examiner who conducted Melissa's autopsy testified that she had blunt force injuries to her face. She had a bruise and scrape above her eye, in between her eyes, on the side of her face, and on her lips. She had scrapes under her jaw and a wound on her face consistent with a fingernail mark. Melissa had been stabbed twice in her neck, one of which hit her jugular vein, causing her to bleed out. The second hit under her neck, hitting her airway, which could have caused her to choke on her own blood. According to the medical examiner, she died as a result of bleeding to death. He said her wounds were defensive, as if she was trying to fend off a sharp instrument from her assailants. He estimated her death was not instant, but that she died within minutes. The manner of death was ruled a homicide. Melissa was last known to be alive at 8.52 p.m. She had been on the phone with Chris until then, after he had called her as he was driving home after clocking out at work. Her daughter found her between 11 and 11.15 p.m., so she was killed sometime between 8.52 and 11.15 that night. Brian Howard was known to be at a Mexican restaurant for dinner with about 15 people, starting around 7 p.m. After the dinner, he left with his girlfriend, Corina. Karina testified that she was with Brian the entire night, except for about five minutes when she left their house to find a friend of her son so he could follow her car back to their house. Brian was never called to testify. In his interview with investigators, 
Russell said he has known Brian since about 1996 or 1997, but he said they weren't close. His brother Michael had worked for Brian, and they were somewhat friends. In his first interview with police weeks after the murder, Russell said he had only left his house on the night of January 6, 2006 with his brother Michael to drop his kids off at their mother's house at 8.30 p.m. and that he was home by 9. In his first interview with police weeks after the murder, Russell said he only left his house on the night of January 6, 2006 with his brother Michael to drop his kids off at their mother's house at 8.30 p.m. and that he was home by 9. In his second interview on February 1st, he told police he left his home around 8.45 p.m., stopped at a gas station and a Walmart, and was home between 9.15 and 9.30. And so investigators pulled surveillance video from the Walmart. They saw Russell and Michael entering the store at 9.35 p.m. Russell had said his girlfriend had asked him to pick up medicine, and he is seen in that aisle. Prosecutors say in the video he seems concerned with what was on his hands. Russell and Michael leave the store at 9.39 p.m. Prosecutors say none of the timelines Russell offered match the evidence. And not only that, but there were some interesting contacts made on the day of the murder between Russell, Michael, and Brian. Phone records show that Michael and Brian spoke on the phone that day around 2.45 p.m. Later that day, Michael and Russell spoke at 5.15 p.m. Then at 6 p.m., Michael and Brian had another call. Seconds later, Michael and Russell then spoke on the phone. Michael and Brian then spoke one more time at 6.15 p.m. FDLE DNA analyst Jennifer Hatler was assigned to Melissa's case when agents reopened it years later. In September 2015, she reprocessed Melissa's bloody sweatshirt. The majority of the sweatshirt had a lot of red-brown staining, a lot of blood on the sample. So I was trying to identify something foreign to Melissa Howard. It was her sweatshirt and her blood was on the sweatshirt. What I did was took swabbings from different areas that did not have as much blood, or um, I couldn't see. It could still be there because it is. it can be light. But I was trying to collect um, from areas that did not have as much red-brown staining. She testified that she found a mixture of DNA profiles on the sweatshirt. At the time, she had a known DNA standard for Brian Howard, Brian's girlfriend, and Michael Holbrook. She compared those standards to the foreign DNA on the sweatshirt. Brian, his girlfriend, and also Chris Cadenhead were all excluded. But Michael Holbrook could not be included or excluded. She then retested the sample and was able to exclude him. But she knew that his brother was a person of interest in the case. She didn't have a sample for Russell at the time, but since she had indications that the DNA on the shirt was for a male— she thought it would be beneficial to conduct further testing using YSTR to test for the Y chromosome. The testing could reveal if the foreign DNA was from a person with male lineage related to Michael. She sent the DNA off to a laboratory in Jacksonville, Florida. But the area she initially sent didn't have enough DNA on it, 
So the lab requested that she resample it and submit the swab again. She also cut out an area from the sweatshirt. This time, the area had new foreign DNA, but she noticed that she must have done something wrong. There was um, quite a bit of DNA in there, which was not typical for this case. It was only really getting the DNA profile from Melissa Howard in the case and maybe some foreign additional information, um, but not a whole lot. And this sample gave me a lot of information. I was like, oh, what did I do? I've done something wrong. Um, so when I went back through, um, we have procedures for this type of thing. Um, and when I went back through, I um, have to redo the PCR where I make the copies again. And it was still there. So I have to backtrack a little bit further. So I know it didn't happen during the, the PCR step or when I'm loading my samples, um, a carryover can occur, carryover one sample to another sample. So I kind of eliminated that and I kept backtracking. And when I was looking through all of my project of all of the data, because I do more than one case at a time, I'm working multiple cases. Um, I was looking through the data. I can also look um, at myself, at my own DNA profile, and all of our staff's DNA profile. So everyone was eliminated, um, including myself. So I started looking through the project, and I realized that it was from a cutting that I had taken right before I worked the sweatshirt. So in my processes, I figured out, I'm pretty sure that what I did was not clean the scissors. So I took a cutting of the underwear, I cleaned my area, but not the scissors. I'm assuming, I'm pretty sure that's where it came from. Got the sweatshirt set up, did my swabbings, and then took those cuttings. And I, I'm figuring I never cleaned the scissors in between the two tests. In other words, there was contamination. She admitted she hadn't followed the procedure by properly cleaning her scissors before cutting off a piece of Melissa's sweatshirt. As a result of this, the FDLE changed their protocol for using scissors in the lab. Before, analysts were responsible for cleaning their own scissors before reusing them in their next test. Now, they use the scissors only once before putting them into a wash bin and grabbing a new pair. Once Agent Hatler figured out the contamination and its source, she was able to retest the sample. A correct sample from the sweatshirt was then sent off to the YSTR testing. The results said the DNA was a match for someone of male relation to Michael, which allowed for the investigators to secure a warrant for Russell's DNA. Agent Hatler was then able to compare his DNA to the DNA found on the sweatshirt. She testified that he could not be excluded and that the sample was a 1 in 39 million match to Russell's DNA. While investigators built their case against Russell, they also decided to keep track of him. Russell and Michael knew back in 2006 that police were looking at them as persons of interest. So when investigators decided to reopen the case, they figured Russell and Michael might have something to say about it. And they thought they might have a lot to say about it to each other. That's why they secured a wiretap warrant for calls between them. The lead investigator on the case from the FDLE was Agent Megan Palumbo. Agent Palumbo was responsible for securing the warrant. A judge approved for 30 days of surveillance to listen in on calls between Russell and Michael in September 2016, 
a court order then extended the wiretap for 30 more days. These calls were played for the jury. The first call investigators listened to was on September 24, 2016. It begins with Michael talking. You'll hear him say, what's up, you make it to the game yet? Russell then responds, yeah, walking to the stadium now. What's up, you make it to the game yet? Yeah, walking up to the stadium now. Uh, well, he says uh, they got some new DNA technology. He showed me a paper saying they have your they have your DNA in multiple places on her body. You're one in thirty nine million. Your DNA was all over her body, and yada yada yada. I mean, that doesn't make sense. I mean, that makes sense. And that's what I said. It doesn't make sense to me. They have, they have. I mean, doesn't that take saliva or sperm? I I don't know. They they called it some YSR shit. Some what? YSR scanning. I don't know. Some some new technology said um, that your, your DNA was in multiple places on her body. So to recap that call, in case it was difficult to understand, Michael tells Russell that the police told him that they found Russell's DNA all over Melissa's body. Russell responds that it doesn't make sense. Don't they need saliva or sperm, he asks. Michael tells him he doesn't know, but said they told him that it was some sort of new scanning technology. Another call investigators listened to was from September 27, 2016. Michael asks Russell if he knows of a man named Shane. Russell says no, and Michael says he doesn't either. Is he, is he the one that Brian supposedly called or whatever? I don't know. That's what they said. That just goes to show you how stupid they are. They're lying, they're making up shit, they're changing shit. Well, yeah, because this is this is a brand new guy they're introducing now. The same guy or a new car? No, different one. I mean that. I mean that was always the. I mean that was one of the theories was that Brian had me do it, but never through somebody else. So in that call, they're talking about how police had been asking about a guy named Shane. They talk about how stupid the police are and how they're lying. Michael told Russell, investigators told him, they heard that Brian tried to get Shane, a man who worked with Brian, to kill Melissa. Apparently, Shane said no, and that's when Brian went to Russell. A third wiretapped call was from September 28, 2016. Russell is on a plane heading to his son's graduation. Michael calls Russell again right after investigators leave his house. He says this time they were also questioning his wife, Missy. He says police accused him of having sat in the truck while Russell confronted Melissa two days prior to the murder. He also says they were following him and Missy this morning and says he believes they're listening in on their phone calls too. Michael says he's never been to Melissa's house. He denies going with Russell to the convenience store and denies following Melissa home. Russell agrees, saying, that's not what happened either. At one point, Russell says, if I'm guilty, I'd be in another country right now. On a call from October 11th, 2016, even though they again surmise that police are listening to them, they continue to talk on the phone about the case. 
Russell says, they can't prove that you were with me. Only thing that they can prove is that you were with me at Walmart. He said they're trying to say they have DNA, that they were together, but that's not what that means. Russell also spoke to one of his oldest friends, Robbie Davis, about the case. Robbie provided the following text messages to law enforcement. Russell texted, They'll have my DNA ran in about a week and an arrest will be made. It's all BS. If that were true, they should have subpoenaed my DNA 10 years ago. I think they're at the end of the line and they're just trying to scare something new out of us. Robbie responded, They said there was new evidence six months ago. Russell wrote, That doesn't make sense. Robbie responded, When yours doesn't match, that will be the end. Nothing else can be said. Russell replied, Yup, just BS they use tactics like that. The text messages continued later that day. With Russell writing, I can tell by what they're saying they're just trying to scare us. The stories aren't adding up. Robbie wrote, Well, to convince me, they'll have to have your DNA. Russell responded, They told Missy I left a blood trail and DNA will prove it's me. I'm like, if that were the case, I would have been arrested 10 years ago because I would have had cuts somewhere. Robbie wrote, you tell me there's no way your DNA is there. It isn't. Russell responded, no way in hell they have my DNA from the night of the murder. No way. When the defense presented their case, they wanted to shore up Russell's alibi. In 2006, Russell's daughter, Danielle, was 13 years old. She lived with her mother. Her parents were divorced. She spent every other weekend with her dad, as well as dinner nights throughout the week. On the night of January 6th, Russell picked up Danielle and her brother, Ryan, so they could go to a birthday party at Russell's house. Uncle Mike, Michael Holbrook, and my dad took my brother and I home. Um, did he? Did your dad make an offer to anybody else whether they wanted to come home or go along for the drive? In a general, hey, got to take the kids. Anybody want to go? Kind of thing. And do you remember roughly when you left the party? I don't remember exactly. Okay. Do you remember roughly when you got to? Um, your house at Staff Road. We're around nine o'clock. The defense also called Michael's wife, Missy, to the stand. She said she's been interviewed by law enforcement officers at least five times in regards to the case. On January 6th, 2006, she was at Russell's house for the birthday party. She said Michael and Russell left in Russell's truck to take his kids home. She remembers Russell's girlfriend calling him, saying her daughter was sick and asking him to bring back some medicine. She doesn't remember how long they were gone. Russell and Michael later returned to the house. She was asked if when they returned, if they were wearing the same clothing, and she said yes. Did you notice anything strange or peculiar about their clothing? She said no. When asked if there was any blood on either Russell or Michael's clothing, she said no. As for their demeanor, she said they appeared normal, the same demeanor as when they left. The defense wanted to conduct their own investigation, and so they hired a private investigator named Gregory Grover. 
Now, the prosecution's theory was that on January 6th, the night of the murder, Russell drove his kids home back to their mom's house after they had been over at his house for a party. After dropping them off, they say he then went and murdered Melissa and then went to a gas station and to Walmart. In his interviews, Russell says he dropped the kids off anywhere from 8.45 to 9 p.m. And as you'll recall, his daughter testified that it was about 9 p.m. The surveillance video from Walmart shows that he arrived there at about 9.35 p.m. Prosecutors think he murdered Melissa just before this. The defense, however, says that he wouldn't have had the time to do that. And they had their private investigator, Gregory Grover, drive different routes to show that he wouldn't have been able to do it. In his first drive, it took him about 14 to 16 minutes to get from where Russell dropped the kids off to the gas station. From there, it was about three to five minutes to go to Walmart and about four and a half to seven minutes to get from Walmart back to the birthday party. In a second drive, it took him 10 to 12 minutes to get to Melissa's house from where the kids were dropped off and then 10 to 14 minutes to get to the gas station. On cross-examination, however, the prosecutor pointed out that additional traffic lights had been added since 2006 and that he doesn't know how they were timed in 2006. Grover admitted that he doesn't know how long the routes would take back then. The defense also retained their own DNA expert, Candy Zulegger. She used to work for the FDLE as a crime lab analyst in DNA and serology. She has testified in about 180 cases, about 70% of the time for the prosecution. She now works at a private laboratory as a DNA analyst in YSTR testing. She reviewed the YSTR report in this case. Would you agree that obviously everyone in Michael Holbrook's male lineage would be consistent with that partial profile in Sukhan Walsh report? It would be, yes, consistent. Could that profile also be from someone not in Michael Holbrook's male lineage? It could also, plus the fact that it's a partial profile, you don't know if you would have gotten more data if it would have excluded that male lineage. She conducted her own test of the sample that DNA analyst Jennifer Hatler tested. Do you agree with Jennifer Hatler's conclusion that she testified regarding B20B? I do. I don't believe he could be included nor excluded. Now I want to focus you on to the analysis on Jennifer Hatler's B20E sample. Are there any limitations in that data in the B20E sample that would affect your analysis? Yes, the biggest problem with that sample, it's uh, the majority of it, except for one allele, all of it's below uh, our stochastic level. And when we talk, we're talking about all of it being below the stochastic level, you're talking about the foreign DNA, correct? Sorry, yes, the foreign DNA is below the stochastic level, except for one of the alleles. Okay. And what does it mean for the um, foreign DNA being below the stochastic threshold? So the stochastic threshold um, is where we're not, we're not confident if uh, two sister peaks go together or not because it's dropped below this level. And can you also um, ex- briefly explain to the jury what stochastic effects are? Um, some of the stochastic effects we're going to see are drop-in, which is rare, um, 
drop out, which is common when you start getting below that level and that low-level DNA, and you also start having peak height imbalances. Um, and in this case, the FDLE used uh, 50%, I believe, for Identifiler Plus. Have you compared Russell Holbrook's standard to that B20E sample? I have. And do you agree with the analysis that Jennifer Hatler performed? I don't agree with those conclusions, no. She explained the locations in the DNA markers she had issue with. She said for some, Russell's DNA could not be a match because he did not have those same markers. Taking these issues into account, were you able to arrive at any conclusions when comparing Russell Holbrook's standard to that B20E mixture? I would have to state that it was a three-person mixture. And if it is a three-person mixture, that I couldn't, still could not exclude him from that mixture. What if it was a two-person mixture? If it's a two-person mixture, then he would have to be excluded because he could not have left that data. Okay. She said it appeared that Agent Hatler did her calculations using a two-person mixture. She also said it appeared Agent Hatler violated an FDLE standard operating procedure when she performed her analysis. As you sit here today, you listened to Jennifer Hatler's testimony, is that correct? Correct. Do you know whether she made an assumption of two or three contributors? She testified that there were two plus a minor, which a two plus a, a trace, basically, which makes it three donors. But the calculation was for two donors or appeared to be for two donors. Do you agree with Jennifer Hatler that David Russell Holbrook's standard is a match to the B20E uh, foreign profile mixture? No, it is, it is not a match. She pointed out that other possible contaminations of the sweatshirt could have taken place. In 2006, EMTs did touch Melissa to check for a pulse, and investigators also swabbed the sweatshirt, and the more it's handled, the more possibilities there are for contamination. Both sides rested their cases and proceeded to closing arguments. Assistant State's Attorney Clifton Drake recapped the trial and the evidence presented before the jury. The defendant's timeline for his activities that Friday changed every time he told it. Ladies and gentlemen, Russell Holbrook had plenty of time to kill Melissa Howard before he went to Walmart. Under this scenario, he had almost an hour. Ladies and gentlemen, Melissa Howard was 5 feet 6 inches and weighed 115 pounds. You've had the opportunity to observe the defendant. He's much bigger. We know he's military trained and he likes knives. Talked about the, the knives that he has, the ones he's a special one from the Air Force. It would not take him long at all to subdue and kill Melissa Howard. He does not need hours upon hours to carry this out. He can go in, do it, and get out. The defense said that although they didn't call nearly as many witnesses as the prosecution, Russell must be given the presumption of innocence. He insisted that even though Russell didn't testify at his trial, the jury did hear his words. This would not be a contest of how many witnesses were called and how many exhibits were presented. I mean, we spoke about that. We, we admitted at opening and, and jury selection that we were not going to win that contest. You know, that the state was going to present many more witnesses and have much more exhibits 
than we did. You've heard Russell testify. Russell's testified three, at least three times. You have those statements, you know, they recorded statements from January the 25th of 06, from February the 1st of 06, and February the 7th of 06. He has testified. His story has not changed. It's been that way from the beginning. He spoke and gave these statements to law enforcement officers willingly. He voluntarily met with them. He didn't have an attorney with him. He met with them, told them his story, what he was doing about the time frame back then on Wednesday and Friday. He said it's the jury's job to weigh the evidence and determine the credibility of the witnesses presented at trial. He asked, did the witnesses have some sort of interest in how the case should be presented? This case was personal, ladies and gentlemen. The evidence was personal to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. They had been working on this case for a long time. They had started in 2006. They weren't getting anywhere. They had all these statements, no arrest, same material, same evidence, nothing. 2016, more agents get involved. They get a little bit more aggressive. And the DNA sample is submitted and supposedly... According to them, they have a match. So what did they do? They started shaking the coconut tree, seeing if coconuts would fall if they went around telling people, hey, Russell, we got his DNA. He's a match. He's a match. And to see what people would do and what people would talk about. And nothing came forward on that. Now, what happened is, is this about this being personal also is that they were aggressive They were in a hurry, and this led to mistakes being made in the lab and elsewhere and to stretching the science that was involved in the case. He told the jury that Melissa's sister works for the FDLE, and so it was even more personal for them. He went on to talk about the night of the murder. He said there were no signs of forced entry which he says is important because Russell and Melissa were not friends, and Melissa was known to have said she wouldn't have let Russell into the house. He said investigators didn't fully swab Melissa for DNA on her wounds to test for a possible assailant. He also pointed out the murder weapon was never recovered. He said his job was not to give the jury an alternate suspect to look at, He did, however, try to poke holes in Melissa's boyfriend Chris's alibi and insisted there was not enough time for Russell to have committed the murder. It is to the evidence that's been introduced at trial and to that alone that you're to look for proof in this case. A reasonable doubt as to the guilt of Russell Holbrook may arise from the evidence conflicts in the evidence, or a lack of evidence. If you have any of those, the doubt is reasonable. He asked the jury to find Russell not guilty. The jury deliberated for about four hours. 
The clerk turned to the courtroom and read the verdict. Quote, We the jury find as follows. As to the offense charged in the indictment, guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. In Florida, a conviction of first-degree murder carries an automatic sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. The judge then officially sentenced him to life in prison. As far as we've been able to tell, Brian Howard is not considered a suspect in this case and has not been charged with any crime related to it. And that's all for today's episode. As always, I'd love to know what you think about this case. Do you agree with the jury that Russell murdered Melissa? If so, what do you think his motive was? Do you think someone else murdered Melissa? And finally, do you think there will be additional arrests in this case made in the future? Let me know by joining the discussion on Instagram at courtjunkie, by tweeting me at courtjunkiepod, or by emailing me at podcast at courtjunkie.com. This episode was researched and written by Jennifer Tintner from the Law and Crime Network. You can follow Jennifer on Twitter at Jennifer Tintner. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. The following episode contains descriptions of sexual violence and may not be suitable for everyone. Please see the episode notes for more information about support services. It starts with a 14-year-old girl with $300 in her purse. She's a freshman at Royal Palm Beach High School. She's only been a student there a few months when a girl she knows named Haley tells her about a way to make some quick cash. Haley Robson's a little older, the cousin of an ex-boyfriend, and she works as a waitress at a local olive garden. One Sunday in February 2005, they get into Haley's pickup truck. They drive down Okeechobee Boulevard, which is lined with fast food restaurants, strip malls, and liquor stores, and cross the bridge onto the island of Palm Beach. Royal Palm High School is in West Palm Beach. The island of Palm Beach, on the other hand, is one of the wealthiest zip codes in the United States. It's a narrow strip of land sandwiched between the Atlantic Ocean and Lake Worth, famous for its multimillionaires and mansions, private clubs like Mar-a-Lago, and the golf courses that line its shores. As Haley and the girl cross the bridge from one world to the other, Haley tells her about the guy she works for. His name is Jeff. Then she adds, If Jeff asks your age, tell him you're 18. They drive down a dead-end street and park in front of a two-story pink house. Then they walk down the driveway, past a guardhouse, and through the kitchen door. Once inside, the girl is offered a drink and introduced to a woman with blonde hair. And that's when the girl loses track of Haley. She's led upstairs into a bedroom, which has a massage table. The girl will later describe the man who walks in as mid-40s with a long face, bushy eyebrows, and silver hair. Take off your clothes, he tells her sternly, and he asks the girl to give him a massage. She's not sure how to react, except to do what the man says. When she tries to keep some of her clothes on, the man tells her to take off everything. At the end, the silver-haired man hands her $300 and sends her back downstairs where Haley is waiting. After they've left, the girl tells Haley that the man asked her to give him a massage. I know, 
Haley replies flatly. They go shopping together, then drive back home. Rumors are flying among the students at the high school that girls are being paid to perform sexual favors for a rich man in Palm Beach. A few days after the girl's visit to the mansion, another student at school calls her a whore. The name-calling turns into a fight, and the fight lands both girls in the assistant principal's office. When the administrator rummages through the girl's purse, she finds $300. At first, the girl won't say where the money came from, but eventually she opens up to her parents. And on March 15, 2005, she and her parents speak with a detective from the Palm Beach Police Department. Slowly, sometimes through tears, the 14-year-old tells the detective her story. From the description of the man, the house, and that first name, Jeff, the police think that they may know who the girl is talking about. He's a wealthy guy in Palm Beach. He's even donated money to the Palm Beach Police Department recently to help pay for much-needed new equipment. They place a photo of the man in a lineup, and the girl points to him right away. Jeffrey Epstein. The police will conduct dozens more interviews like this as the investigation continues, interviews with other young women and other girls. But this, this is the first, the first time the Palm Beach Police Department will speak with one of Jeffrey Epstein's victims. And more women will speak in the years to come. You're just thrown into a world that you don't understand and you're screaming on the inside and you don't know how to let it come out. That same night, Jeffrey Epstein is 1,200 miles away at a charity benefit inside an old bank building that's been converted into one of the most lavish event spaces in New York City. Rod Stewart is performing. In a photo taken that night, Epstein's wearing a double-breasted navy jacket, a blue shirt, and a gold watch with a black leather band. He has his arm around a woman, pulling her head toward his so that his smirking lips graze her temples. The smiling woman is Ghislaine Maxwell, who Epstein calls his best friend. Epstein is tan and relaxed, and as his eyes meet the camera, he looks like he doesn't have a care in the world. And for a man who firmly believes that his wealth can solve any problem he faces, perhaps he's right not to be worried. From Wondery, I'm Lindsey Graham, host of American Scandal, and this is The Mysterious Mr. Epstein. We have breaking news tonight about new women coming forward saying Jeffrey Epstein sexually abused them when they were minors. The man Trump once called a terrific guy back behind bars. Breaking news, Jeffrey Epstein, the multimillionaire, financier, and accused sex trafficker is dead. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein. Long before Epstein dominated headlines as a sex trafficker of girls and young women, he received a glowing reception in the highest reaches of American society. Epstein formed business relationships with billionaires and amassed a large fortune of his own. Beyond his home in Palm Beach, he owned a seven-story townhouse in New York City, a private island in the Caribbean, and a 10,000-acre ranch in New Mexico. He cultivated friendships with ex-president Bill Clinton and future president Donald Trump. Nobel Prize winners praised him to the press as brilliant and fun, charming, and handsome. When Epstein died in a New York jail this summer, he left behind many unanswered questions. 
This is a six-part series that uses original interviews we've conducted and brings together extensive research and reporting to tell the complete story of how the wealthy financier, accused of financial and sexual crimes, was able to elude justice from his first days as a young man on Wall Street until the very end. This is Episode 1, A Free Man. It's the morning of March 22, 2017, on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. President Trump has been in office two months, and a Senate committee has gathered to question his nominee for Secretary of Labor, Alexander Acosta. Acosta is in his late 40s, a former U.S. attorney for Southern Florida. He has a receding hairline and a wide mouth, and he's wearing the dark suit that's standard issue for a man appearing before a congressional committee, a committee that holds the fate of his confirmation in its hands. Nearly two hours pass, more or less amicably. Trump has had some controversial cabinet picks, but Acosta is not considered one of them. Until Senator Tim Kaine takes his turn to address Acosta. The committee needs to ask about, and I think you're entitled to respond to an article that appeared in the Washington Post online version last night uh, and this morning. Uh, Labor nominee Acosta cut deal with billionaire guilty in sex abuse case. The billionaire is Jeffrey Epstein. There was once a time before the investigations, before the sexual abuse conviction, when rich and famous men loved to hang around with Jeffrey Epstein, a billionaire money manager who loved to party. President Trump called Epstein a terrific guy. Senator Kane asks Acosta why he didn't indict Epstein nearly 10 years ago when these accusations first surfaced. And there's an allegation that I just read that um, you did not pursue a federal indictment, even though your staff had advocated that you do so. Is that accurate? That was just a preview of The Mysterious Mr. Epstein. To hear the rest, subscribe to The Mysterious Mr. Epstein on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.